Hi folks, welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. Your friends might not want to talk about their journey with money, but I sure do. I'm Ruth and I'm a blogger on personal finance in New Zealand and in this podcast series I tell the stories of Kiwis and their experiences with the money in their lives. If you wonder how I find people to talk to, well, most of them come via my blog, my podcast or my Instagram and often chat startup via emails. And I warn you, I write a pretty long email. Now, every day I get people dropping me a line with a thought or a question, a dilemma or a hallelujah that they have actually found someone somewhere in New Zealand that they can talk money with, which I think is absolutely brilliant. And this is exactly how Shane and I came to meet, virtually meet that is. We went back and forth with emails and I picked up that there might be an interesting money journey to share so that's what I'm going to be bringing you today. But before we get started here is a quick message from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Superlife's My Future Fund. We all want the best for our kids and this fund is designed to help you help them save for their future. This fund is flexible so that anyone can save for a child because My Future Fund is not just for parents. More than one person can save for the same child at the same time, such as grandparents, other relatives, godparents and friends. It is an ideal vehicle to receive cash presents for birthdays or the holiday season. This is truly the gift that keeps on giving. Superlife's fees are amongst the lowest in the market and there are a broad range of investment options to choose from including age steps which sets the child's allocation to growth assets based on their age. Visit superlife.co.nz and follow the quick link Invest for Children to find out more. And just so you know, Superlife is managed by SmartShares and you can download a copy of the product disclosure statement at superlife.co.nz for more information. Often people want to remain anonymous, which I can understand, but there is no need to change Shane's name because society has already done this for him. Now, when I do email back and forth, I build up an image of who I might be talking to. I had Shane tipped as maybe a fourth generation Southland farmer or maybe a mechanic because a name says a lot, but not enough apparently, because as soon as I heard his accent on the phone, I realised that I had it completely wrong. He is called Shane because when he came to New Zealand as a 12-year-old from India, everyone had such trouble pronouncing his name that they just called him Shane. He told me he has Middle Eastern ancestry and actually moved to New Zealand from India where they were living at the time when he was either 12 or 13 years old. He couldn't quite recall exactly when. Today he is living in Auckland, he is 41, he's married and he has a four-year-old daughter. And he told me he used to be head boy of his school in India and it was, as you could imagine, a really huge cultural shock to come to New Zealand. And then he recalls that his first few years were not that easy as a kid. They were tough but very character building and now he would not live anywhere else. His parents came here, as most people do, for a better life for their family. In India, both of his parents were lawyers. About 29 years ago, they came to New Zealand with Shane and with his older brother and with 2,000 US dollars, which is very little money today and it was a very small amount back then too. For five years, they lived a very basic existence where his dad was the only one to work and he worked a number of odd jobs, including phone sales, working in a supermarket and basically doing whatever he could to earn some money while he tried to get back to working as a solicitor because he needed to retrain and sit exams to continue working in his actual profession. 
His mother never took this retraining path, but instead concentrated on her own family. And now she does a fair bit of voluntary work with the hospice, with the Cancer Society, and also with the Salvation Army, which is pretty cool. His father finally gained the necessary qualifications to get back into his profession, and he has actually just finally retired at the age of 79. And both of Shane's parents now live in a unit connected to Shane and his wife's house, which is pretty cool. So on to the many questions I had to ask him. And firstly, I asked what was one piece of advice, either good or bad, that his parents taught him about money? And what does he wish they had taught him that he has since worked out for himself? Well, in India, he said, saving was a big thing. And when they lived there, it was a cash economy. There was no finance industry in India. Now, this is changing rapidly uh, as people have credit cards and are really getting into the Western lifestyle that Shane is currently trying to get away from. But back then, it was about living within your means and paying with cash. Growing up in New Zealand, his parents told him to always pay with cash and they were always pulling him back when he went down the path of buying flash cars and they often questioned his decisions. Apparently his reasoning was that he did need those cars to be cool. Now I'm sure that reasoning went down a real treat with his parents and although he certainly did not agree with them at the time subconsciously, some of their advice was sinking in and he came around to their way of thinking in the end. Also subconsciously as a young boy he absorbed the money struggles of his parents as they tried to settle into New Zealand and he knew that he did not want to have to go through that as an adult. Today Shane works as a management consultant and when I asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up or was he already doing it, he explained that it's just a job and it's a means to an end. When he started in the workforce, he wanted to be CEO, as many fresh-faced young people want to be, but when he got to middle management, he pulled back from this, and for 15 years now, he has been a consultant, and he no longer works as an employee. He has no great career aspirations any longer, and is instead only doing it for the cash flow, and so he can meet some nice and interesting people and enjoy the friendships that he has formed. He has concluded that work takes up a lot of his life and he has missed valuable time with his daughter and with his family and now he is on a mission to change that. He trained as a software developer and in the mid-90s when he got his first job he earned an annual salary of $35,000 which was considered pretty good for a young guy. He looks back and recalls that he did silly things like buy flash cars and waste a lot of income but he never did any of it on credit, only with cash. He still works in IT as a self-employed consultant for various organisations like the ASB in New Zealand and the ANZ, helping them with organisational change or getting new products to market. And being self-employed, there has been the occasional period of up to one and a half years where he has not worked at all, and this is fine by him. He has also had short periods of two to four months where he could not find work, but this does not bother him, and he loves the sense that he can move around different organisations and not have to become too involved in the water-cooler talk of each company. He can always stay one step removed. And he was open when he talked about the income and pointed out that due to being self-employed, he does not earn a set amount each year. He gets paid by the hour and by the day and said that his income is certainly over the $100,000 mark, sometimes well over, but that it's also very variable. His wife, on the other hand, has worked for some time as a social work practitioner and she loves her job, which involves working with children and adults in the area of family violence prevention. So what are their three main financial goals, the things that they just automatically do in their household? 
Number one is that they use a credit card for every single purchase and they then pay it off in full every month. And they do this uh, to use the interest-free money for 30 days and also to earn the air points or cash back. Uh, And they can then use that to have a little holiday every once in a while. Number two is that they have a revolving credit mortgage and have had from day one. All of their income goes into this account and all of their expenses go out from it. And currently this is fully paid off and more on that a little bit later. Now, number three for them is that they do not consume a spend at all. So the expenses coming out of that account are very low. Now, neither of them are big spenders. And now that they also track their spending in their budget, they really have control over every single purchase that they do make. With spending in mind, I asked what was the most extravagant thing that Shane has purchased for himself in the last 90 days? Well, he finally updated his phone. He started looking for it because his colleagues were pestering him about his ancient phone and telling him that he had to upgrade. And he finally bought one after four months of research and bargain hunting and he used dicksmith.co.nz, their website, to do it. Now, after biding his time while they stalked him with offers, he finally managed to get a $600 phone for $300. And on phones, he has watched people in the corporate world annually buying the latest $1,600 phone and then wondering why they can't get ahead. Perhaps if they spent less on a new phone each year, they could, he has surmised. So he was perfectly happy with his Samsung Galaxy J7 for 300 bucks. Thanks very much. And what has his greatest financial flop been to date? He told me that he has lost about $50,000 in total over a 20-year period by investing in blue chip shares. He said he was sucked in by apparent gurus and some probably well-meaning friends telling him that they would make him rich and famous. I'm not sure he was ever seeking fame, but he was certainly trying to make a buck, but it has not panned out that way. And for those who are unsure, a blue chip share is the stock of a large or well-established financially sound company that has been in operation for many years. So think like Auckland Airport or Contact Energy, for example. Now, I'm not sure what he invested in specifically, but they are by no means guaranteed not to fail. And clearly he picked a few duds here. Now, I'll talk in a minute about how and where he invests, but I wanted to know who he has around him that he can talk money with, apart from the odd guru with dodgy advice, that is. Now, certainly his wife is top of the list, but it's only been in the last five years that they have both started thinking more about their finances. And now she, like him, is becoming increasingly interested and does a lot of research. And it's been this last year in particular that they have really started to focus in detail on what they are doing with their money. They were both guilty of the fact that they did not even know how much they were spending. So only in late 2017 did they actually start tracking their spending in a budget. And he thinks it's crazy that it took them so long to realise that this was so important to getting ahead financially. The main thing they discovered was that in total they were spending a lot more for a three-person household than they realised and creating a budget that tracked everything was a big wake-up call. Together they worked out that they spend about fifty to $60,000 a year, which seems high to them, but they have absolutely no way of knowing if this is high or low compared to other people living in Auckland because they don't have people to talk about this stuff with. Now, there are a couple of people that they do talk a bit about finance with, but they're only quite recent friends that they've met in the last year or two. And he told me that they're really good people, but they are in a different league altogether as they run a 100-year-old, extremely successful 
uh, family business. They're humble people, but um, come at things from a completely different background than Shane, but they are a source of knowledge nonetheless. He said that money was never talked about growing up, and he is not even sure how he got interested in it himself, but now if people ask his opinion, he will give it, and for about the last 15 years, he has helped his own father with his investments, and he is pleased to finally see the fruit of some of these investments that his parents um, have been making, seeing it paying off and they're using it in their own retirement. So what does Shane think the key to becoming a millionaire is, and is this even his goal? Well, his net worth is now over $2 million, with a lot of that tied up in property. So he has made it, so to speak, but he was quick to point out that having a $1 million now is not what it used to be. He never believed it until recently, but he thinks that it takes a mindset, an attitude, and it also takes a vision to become a millionaire that he never used to have, and it also means you have to ask yourself why. Do you want to achieve that figure to show others what you have or to live a particular lifestyle? For him, he wanted to become a millionaire so he could get out of the corporate world and simply be with his family more. He is involved in a voluntary capacity with a number of groups such as Age Concern, the Cancer Society and the SPCA and he wants money so he can spend more time in and on these things. So what is his money elevator pitch, a sentence that would sum up his approach to money, I wondered. He told me that rather than living your entire life running around trying to earn money to then spend, money should not be the thing that drives your life. It should just be an enabler to let you live your life. So righto, I think I have ascertained that Shane is a really nice bloke and with his wife they have set themselves up really well financially. But how did they do this? He paid for university himself by working throughout his university years at places like Countdown, Farmers and Pack and Save and he managed to also save up enough to put down a 10% deposit on a small two-bedroom unit in Auckland with an asking price of $161,000. He bought his first house at the age of 22, which was about 19 years ago. He rented it out while he continued to live with his parents until he was about 30 years old, which actually worked out really well for him because for many years he went overseas a lot for working stints in Australia, Singapore, Malaysia and the US and he could use his folks place as a base for when he was at home and they still own that unit today. Since the early 2000s, he got involved in a lot of property transactions and he reckons he has tried pretty much every strategy you could imagine, like buy and hold, uh, doing up and selling, also known as flipping, wrapping, I've never heard of this one, where the tenant rents to buy. If the rent is $400 a week, they pay $600 and over time they can buy it off you completely. But he discovered that these are for people with poor credit who can't use a bank. So he actually became a third tier lender and he stopped doing this as he did not like the ethics of it. The person would pay a deposit and if they could not pay the rent at any point, they would lose that deposit. And he described the situation as messy. And he even bought a small development at one point. So to some, this might sound like it is a money-making situation and a path to riches, but not so. For all of this buying and selling and flipping and flapping around, a year ago, his portfolio was returning him just 0.5% in terms of income. Up until this point, he had been self-taught, apart from attending a couple of overpriced and, in his words, dodgy property investment seminars, but he found that he was driving himself nuts as he could not decide what to do and how to make money out of their properties. 
He thought he had a good portfolio to get him a good income, but he was barely getting an income at all. So for the first time, he decided to pay someone else to give him a better perspective because he admitted that he was fumbling his way through with a lack of strategy. And he found a financial advisor and they gave him a completely different view and strategy on how to do things, which in hindsight he said, he said this new strategy was actually staring him in the face the whole time. Now Shane tracked down his own financial advisor but he found along the way that from his experience many financial advisors are complete rubbish and they don't have your best interests in mind. It took him a long time to find an advisor that he trusted and he eventually found one through talking to a few people and asking around and in the end it was his own lawyer who suggested the advisor that he is now with. When searching, he was continually asking, does this person have the right ethics or are they just trying to sell me something? He said his advisor is more focused on real estate, but is also introducing him to the idea of investing in shares and together they bounce ideas around which has helped him make decisions and then to make some really good changes. And the main thing is that he realised he can't do everything himself and his DIY attitude has got him a really long way, but it can only take him so far and in some aspects you do need to get the qualified opinions of other people. With the help of an advisor, he has sold down a number of properties and rearranged everything. He had one property that he swore to himself he would never sell because it was in a really nice location. But his advisor asked him outright, why? Why hold it? Nice location or not? The return was an abysmal 0.2% and his advisor also set him up with homework where he had to create some spreadsheets to track all of his activity and progress. So on that advice, he has sold down a bit and now only has two rental properties, which although they have built up a lot of equity over time, he does still have a small 10 to 20% mortgage on them. He is going to leave the houses to pay themselves off as they are self-funding and he intends to put any additional money into a better returning asset. But now after payments are made to the bank, they are earning him a little income of about $10,000 per year. Not enough to quit his day job, but a sign of things to come. And with the help of this financial advisor, they have now worked out a strategy after taking a long, hard look at the mathematics. He has now calculated he will be debt-free in five years and any rental income he makes will finally be his because he will finally own these assets outright. So now he owns two great properties, one in Auckland and one in Rotorua, and his strategy is no longer all over the show. It's buy it, own it outright and hold it. He also owns his own home outright, but he does not view this as one of his investments. They bought it about 15 years ago, and when he took his wife to view it for the very first time, she refused to even go inside because it was such a terrible little house. But they have built it back up over the last 15 years, and with his own family and his parents so close, this is home, with no plans of moving anywhere else, and the area they live in has grown better and better over time as well, he told me. Listening to the qualified advice of a financial advisor has made him adjust his thinking around investing and he is now at a point where he is thinking that he wants and he needs to diversify away from such a property focus. Residential property is, he told me, a game that does not give you much unless you are an active investor. But like he was doing, most people just sit and they wait for equity to build and that is the only strategy just to rely on capital gains as well. But he has changed his tune now to get back into managing that property well so that it can actually return him an income and his intention is to own it outright with no lending so that he can do that. 
Personally, I think that a lot of people who want to buy a rental never have the step as their goal to actually own the property or their time frame to pay it off is just far too long. If I was ever going to buy a rental property, which I'm pretty much sure I never will, um, I would be paying that sucker off as fast as possible so it could actually provide me an income. I would not be leveraging and leveraging and leveraging to purchase more houses with more debt. And in my view, there is a reason banks don't own rental properties, but instead lend you and I money to purchase them, right? Now, he does not want to be just in the property space and he is looking at other business opportunities and also at shares, ones that give him return this time though perhaps. Uh, He is sitting on some of what he referred to as his blue chip shares that his mate told him to buy 20 years ago and they are still in the negative, yet to go up in value and I'm thinking that perhaps they are not so blue chip after all, Shane. So he thinks that he has had zero luck in shares but the financial independence community in New Zealand and overseas has been showing him that perhaps he is just involved in the wrong shares, much like he got involved in the wrong property. So he should not tar all of them with the same brush perhaps. So he still has about $10,000 of his original shares to sell and he is researching index funds or managed funds as well at the moment as a better way to get involved in investing. I.e. don't just buy one company, buy into 50 or 500 at the same time and spread your risk. I asked Shane if he had an emergency fund and he does not have a specific amount of money set aside in case of an emergency. What he does instead is he keeps the umbilical cord to his bank in place and has kept the lending facility for his own home open, even though it's paid off. Now the bank charges him $10 a month for this facility and if he or a member of his family were to suffer a health crisis or the roof was leaking and needed replaced or what have you, he could draw down on this. And from speaking to a number of people who have lived a long time with mortgages, this is a pretty common situation I've found and I wondered if he will ever work himself into a position where he feels he can let this go and he said that even given what he is learning about personal finance and the financial independence community, he still would not change the setup. So after rejigging his property investments, he has freed up some cash and he is currently looking to invest that somewhere, but he does not want to rush into that decision. It is currently just sitting in the bank and getting a very small return while he researches his options. And is he saving for his four-year-old daughter, I wondered. Well, his wife actually keeps asking the same question as she would like to get something started up for her soon. But Shane, he is just holding off while he is working out how much money they need themselves in order to both spend less time at work and more time at home. And once he works out what passive income their investments can return them and what they need to live on, then they will make the decision about their daughter. But I think that she is going to be quite okay regardless. His intention is to stop work when he can make a passive income of about $70,000 a year and currently they are making only about $10,000 from their rental properties as they are still steadily paying down debt on them. And speaking of $10,000, if I gave him that amount right now, what would he do with it? Well, he said he would actually get into index funds in the share market just to get balance out of his portfolio, which he feels is a bit real estate heavy. So given that Shane and his wife have worked themselves into a really good position, I was keen to ask him if he could retain all of the knowledge that he has today regarding money and he could go back to his 15-year-old self and start again, what would he do, whether it be the same or something quite different? Well, after all these years of investing and working, he refers to himself as only financially independent to a 
basic level. And if he had his time again, he would choose to do a few things differently. He would not buy expensive cars when he first started his career. See, his parents were right on that one after all. And he would instead have piled that money into both real estate and share investments. And in order to make sure he did this correctly, he would spend more money on financial education and finding the right kind of professionals to work him through it. That real estate course I mentioned earlier was a lesson to him. He did it back in the 90s with a dodgy crowd offering a path to riches, but they charged him $5,000 to do it and he said he got stuff all out of it. To give them probably more credit than they are owed, he said it did give him the impetus to buy his first rental property, but they were, he said, basically as dodgy as hell. But he had no one else to turn to for good advice, and if he had his time again, he would find a good professional that could teach him, rather than a dodgy crowd whose business was actually running a course to make money. His biggest financial triumph has also been one that has really got him thinking. He sees being able to be in his current position as a reasonable achievement. He was not so bold as to call it a triumph. And he does compare himself with others in his industry who live a way flashier life than him. But they can't stop working for the next 20 to 30 years because they simply spend all of what they make. This last year for Shane has had him thinking, how do I change and improve my situation? Because if he was to just continue on the same pathway, then he could see himself having to work for another 10 years at least in the corporate world that he has become quite wary of. He just didn't feel he could hack it for that duration and that was why he started looking to speed up his progress so he can have the choice to spend more time with his family and do more of the charity work that he really enjoys. By the end of 2018, he is hoping to be in a position to cut down his hours of work, which is a scary thought because he is saying goodbye to income, but also extremely exciting as he gets to start in on other interests. And given that, in the last 12 months in particular, he has really started to reflect on where he has been and has become a whole lot more intentional about where he is going, I was interested to ask how much he engages in his financial education now. Well, he said that this year in particular, he has spent a lot of time driving in his car while absorbing podcasts. And he said he reads a lot of real estate books, particularly those with a New Zealand focus as they are specific to the rental industry here. And he enjoyed Think and Grow Rich by um, somebody he said was called Napoleon Hill. And he said that for someone starting out, they should also check out Robert Kiyosaki. Mr Money Mustache was his gateway into learning about the concept of financial independence and he is currently absorbing a huge amount of his blogs which are helping him put his own thoughts into action. He did however find the volume of information and breadth of information confusing so in order to collate his own thoughts he's actually started up a blog of his own called Fiminator which he posts to occasionally and this is where he answers his own questions and puts them in a place where others might come across them and find them useful and I'll link to his blog in my show notes. Righto, it's almost time to wrap up, but before I let you go, uh, here's a quick message from today's sponsor. A huge thank you to Superlife's My Future Fund for helping me bring this episode to you today. Superlife, managed by SmartShares, lets you save for any child in your life and give them the gift of a secure financial future. Visit superlife.co.nz to view the product disclosure statement and use the quick link Invest for Children to find out more. Shane has been at this a while now. He started with real estate when he was 22 and now he is in his early 40s with a beautiful family and a high combined income. But he is getting to be so over his job now and the thought of settling in for another 25 years until retirement age is just an option he does not want to entertain. He is now aiming for fire or financial independence so he can retire early. So 
in this last year in particular, he has started to pay very close attention to the money coming in and out of their household and to the structure of the investments they already have. And he acknowledged the fact that DIY investing has its limits and bringing in that outside knowledge has been a game changer for him because it has brought his retirement date much closer now. And I'm sorry, I know I'm telling Shane's story here and I should not be bringing my own thoughts into it, but I can't help but see a glaring problem with rental investing. Shane is sick of his job. He wants to quit and he wants to hang out with his family, which I think is an excellent goal. He has a very high net worth now of over $2 million because of the equity that is built up in three properties, one of which is his own home, of course. Now, he owns his own home outright and he realises it's never going to pay him an income. That's fine. I get it. And he also has a lot of equity that he has built up in the two rental properties. But because they still have debt on them, then any rental income they generate is going towards paying that debt. Only when he and his wife own them outright can he earn an income off them and quit his day job. And this is why a rental property is such an illiquid asset, and in my humble opinion, (laughs) so limiting as the primary pathway to financial freedom. Even with a huge $2 million in net worth, he still can't take his foot off the working pedal. They have done so very well, but Shane is still trapped until the debt is paid in full. I know if I was him, I would be throwing every single cent I could find, either from my income or from the small rental return, at my debt so I could walk my child to kindy in the morning now. But to finish, I know a number of people in this exact situation where they have invested solely in the rental market, but in the end, they get trapped within it. And yes, the tenants are paying the rent, which pays the mortgage, but they are not paying Shane's own electric or grocery bill. You can see they are creating wealth in an asset, but ultimately, it's not a wealth that they can use in their daily life. So they have to continue to work harder than ever, which is a bit of a catch-22. Now the rubber has hit the road with Shane and he understands the situation and this is certainly one of the reasons why throughout our conversation he did talk about becoming more diversified. And full credit to him and his wife for really educating themselves, particularly in the last six months, to really understand their current investment mix and financial situation and to make the right decisions for them going forward. Now I think that for anyone listening to this, there are just so many takeaways from their money journey that we can apply to our own investing situation. So have fun having a wee think about it. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next Wednesday with another money journey of another Kiwi. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And I would love it if you could give me a five-star review in iTunes and share it with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about my podcast. And I would also love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.